You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. This week, we reach the halfway point through our episodes on the Big Five Studios of Hollywood's Golden Age. Today's topic will be Fox Studios, a.k.a. 20th Century Pictures, a.k.a. 20th Century Fox, a.k.a. 20th Century Studios. While you're probably more likely to associate the name Fox with the television networks, The namesake founder, William Fox, never had any connection with them. With Disney acquiring the studio in 2019, Fox's name was unceremoniously wiped from the studio he built to avoid confusion with the television networks that bear his name. Fox's original studio revolutionized the sound picture before personal and professional hardships locked him out of the motion picture business. His studio would have a second life, however, with it being purchased by a startup studio, 20th Century Pictures, the merger of which would make the newly formed 20th Century Fox one of the most successful studios of Hollywood's golden age. As with Paramount and MGM, Fox, possibly more so than the others, eventually expanded into a vast media empire, but for the purposes of today, we will be focusing on its studio's film history. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Born in Hungary as Vilmos Fuchs, the man who would become William Fox immigrated with his family to New York City when he was nine months old in search of the American dream. In his youth, Fox would work as a paper boy and sell candy, even assembling a crew of neighborhood boys to peddle the sweets. Despite only having a third-grade education, William Fox grew into a businessman, eventually investing profits from his successful clothing business in 1904 to acquire his first Nickelodeon theater. Like Adolf Zucker and Marcus Lowe, the founders of Paramount and MGM respectively, Fox was always more of a businessman than an entertainer and saw the movies as more of a money-making venture than an art form. To fill his theaters, Fox purchased film prints from several production companies including Vitagraph, Biograph, and Pathé on a per-foot basis and added vaudeville acts to the entertainment lineups in his theaters. When the money finally started coming in, Fox bought several other theaters, each larger and more opalescent than the last. An incredibly hands-on businessman, a habit he would keep up throughout his film career, Fox knew each day how many tickets had been sold in each of his theaters. 
As the theater chain continued to expand, so did Fox's knowledge of the industry pipeline as a whole. Diversifying his motion picture empire, Fox purchased territorial rights and rented films to other theaters as the Greater New York Film Rental Company. The meteoric success of Fox's budding motion picture business, as well as others like him, was seen as a threat to some of the more established studios. A group of the largest American studios, including Thomas Edison, Vitagraph, and Biograph, as well as two of the largest European studios, Millier and Pathé, formed the Motion Pictures Patents Company, a monopolistic venture in which the members declared that they alone were the owners to the entire motion picture pipeline, from filming to exhibition by 1910. If another studio or theater was to be allowed to stay in business, they would have to pay a weekly fee to the MPPC. While this short-lived company would standardize the motion picture industry in the long run, at the time the trust was ruthless, suing any studio that resisted their control. When the trust attempted to buy out the distribution licenses, essentially putting independent theaters out of business, William Fox resisted. Instead, Fox offered to distribute any film from a producer or studio that couldn't or wouldn't pay the licensing fees of the MPPC in the hopes to weaken the influence of the trust. After the MPPC canceled his distribution license, Fox sued them, citing violation of the Sherman antitrust laws, something I'm sure you know by now would come back to bite the Big Five nearly 30 years later. While the lawsuit took two years and was inevitably settled out of court, Fox was victorious, and by 1913, the trust had lost much of its control. Within five years, all companies from within the trust had dissolved, unable or unwilling, to adapt to the changing tastes of the modern audience. Fox got into the motion picture production game later than Adolf Zucker or even Lowe's had, and his eventual entrance came more out of necessity than a desire to use his own tastes to create content. By 1915, Fox was overseeing six distribution exchanges, and those exchanges needed films, more than he could get his hands on. The Fox Film Corporation was founded on February 1st, 1915, with capital provided by several Newark families and a New Jersey-based investment house. 50% of the initial stock went to Fox, whilst the remaining 50 was split among his investors, one of whom would immediately sell their stocks to Fox, giving him voting control. Early Fox films were primarily based on popular books and stage plays. The average filmgoer at the time likely couldn't afford to see a Broadway show, but they could afford to see a theatrical version, a gamble which would pay off for Fox. Additionally, most of the filmgoing patrons of the time were Eastern European immigrants who either could not speak English or were just beginning to learn, so the silent film was an accessible and affordable means for entertainment. Fox soon purchased the Eclair Studio in Fort Lee, New Jersey and leased yet another from the Selig Polyscope Company to begin production. 
following in the footsteps of Paramount and MGM. Fox had already set his sights on the West Coast, investing in a location in modern-day Century City, about seven miles southeast of Hollywood, which would be completed in 1916. Fox then sent Saul M. Wurzel, his executive assistant, to Los Angeles to oversee production starting in 1917. Wurzel kept Fox, who remained in New York, in the know of the goings-on of every aspect of business on the lot. Fox opted to keep both bicoastal stages running despite the more agreeable weather and varied locations that the Golden State provided. This allowed Fox to churn out about 70 films per year between 1917 to 1920. Their first hit would be 1917's A Fool There Was, starring soon-to-be Fox star Theda Berra. Hailing from Cincinnati, Theodosia Goodman, quickly renamed Theda Berra, Fox gave the actress a false background, including that her name anagrammed to Arab death. While inherently false, the public loved it. Berra continued to put out a string of successful films for Fox, including her most famous, Cleopatra, before tiring of the business by 1919. She had grown tired of the vapid characters she continuously found herself playing, as well as the fans that harassed her. Fox also produced westerns like 1916's The Mediator and family-friendly outings directed by Chester and Sidney Franklin, like Jack and the Beanstalk and Aladdin and the Wonderful Lamp, both coming out in 1917. Fox, and by extension Wurzel's, micromanagement business style alienated them from some of the more prominent talent of the day, especially in their directorial department, forcing the duo to find talent that could work under the conditions that they had put in place. This included directors like Frank Lloyd, Raoul Walsh, and Sidney and Chester Franklin. With talent continuing to leave en masse and the changing audience tastes after World War I, Fox started making newsreels, which the company would produce between 1919 and 1930, as well as experimenting with serial films. Think of a serial film as a precursor to the television episode. A story would be told a little bit at a time each week at the cinema. Their most profitable examples, Bride 13 and Phantomas, unfortunately, have been lost to time. Slapstick comedies, a popular genre of the time, was another Fox delved into with the sunshine comedies. Unfortunately, the tricky part about trying to discuss the first 20 years of Fox film is that their early films, by and large, have been lost to time, many in a studio fire on the Fox lot in 1937. After generating revenue by taking his company public, Fox managed to acquire better directors for his pictures, including Howard Hawks and John Ford. John Ford, who would go on to become one of the most influential directors in American history, had his first major hit with the film The Iron Horse in 1924. Produced by Fox, the film told the story of the first transcontinental railroad 
shot on location in the Sierra Nevadas, the film was a logistical nightmare. Quote, two entire towns were constructed. There were 5,000 extras, 100 cooks, 2,000 rail layers, a cavalry regiment, 800 Indians, 1,300 buffalo, 2,000 horses, 10,000 cattle, and 50,000 properties, including the original stagecoach used by Horace Greeley, Wild Bill Hickok's Derringer pistol, and replicas of the Jupiter and 119 locomotives that met at Promontory Point when the ends of the line were joined on May 10, 1869. As if this weren't enough, the film was plagued by bad weather and production delays. When the micromanaging Fox would send telegrams to Ford for updates, he would either tear them up or have one of the stuntmen shoot holes in them. Despite all of this, The Iron Horse became one of the highest grossing films of the 1920s and launched Ford's career. Ford would work consistently with Fox until Fox would find himself in hot water at the end of the decade. Instead of using A-list or B-list to describe projects, Fox tiered its films based on star power as follows. Standard brand, the highest quality with the highest distribution returns. Victory brand, the intermediate films. And Excel brand, featuring entry-level talent that was rented to theaters at lower rates. From this, Fox determined his productions for the year. 26 standards would be released per year, 16 featuring their most prominent stars at the time, and another 10 that would be chosen based on content and quality of the story and direction. The victory in Excel tiers also allowed Fox to test talent with little financial risk and move talent up or down depending on whether or not their pictures were popular and how audiences responded to them. When Warner Brothers introduced the sound picture in 1927 with their implementation of the Vitaphone, Fox had already invested in a different method than his competitor had with sound-on-film technology called the Movie Tone back in 1925. Fox knew that the Vitaphone system that the Warner Brothers had gone to market with wasn't viable in the long run as it was nearly impossible to edit, something they all had to contend with depending on the markets and censorship offices. More on that next week. The system that Fox invested in had the soundtrack running on the sides of the film cells, which were read via another sensor in the projector and then amplified through a speaker. The Vitaphone was a record player that ran in sync with the projector. Progress was slow, in part due to Fox having to go to one of the three companies who had the copyrights for sound on film technology, eventually landing with AT&T. By the end of 1927, there were three competing sound systems, the Western Electric Vitaphone, the Western Electric Fox Movie Tone, and the RCA Vodophone, which was also sound on film. Studios without a direct dog in the fight, including Paramount, MGM, and Universal Pictures, were tasked with testing out each system over the course of one year to determine which was the best system, with the agreement that whatever system the studios decided on would be the one they all went forward with. Despite Warner's success with a jazz singer, the studios opted for Fox's movie tone, a huge win for Fox. 
Fox became the first studio to announce that they would release all further pictures with sound in 1929. While this was a huge win for William Fox, his winning streak would be short-lived. As mentioned last week, upon the death of rival Marcus Lowe in 1927, William Fox wanted to purchase the Lowe's family stock in MGM, which included Lowe's over 200 theaters, as well as the MGM studio. While the family agreed upon the sale, MGM studio boss Louis B. Mayer used powerful political connections to delay the final merger, one that would never come to pass. In the summer of 1929, William Fox was in a terrible car accident, and by the second day he had returned to work, the stock market crashed. Even though it was the empire he built, everyone has to answer to someone. The stock market crash wiped out nearly all of the Fox studio fortune, and despite doing everything he could to save his studio, in 1930, he lost control of Fox Film Corporation during a hostile takeover. Fox had spent a substantial amount of money converting all of the studio's 1,100 theaters to accommodate sound, an expensive venture, which accrued substantial debt for the company. Additionally, Fox would attempt to stave off personal bankruptcy in 1935, going so far as bribing a judge, committing perjury in the process. When the judge got busted for taking bribes, so did William Fox. Fox confessed and served a six-month jail sentence for obstruction of justice and attempting to defraud the United States. William Fox was permanently removed from his studio in 1930, though his name would still be carried on films until 1935. Once being released from prison, he never worked in the film industry again, not even in the soon-to-be-formed studio that would bear his name. Fox, despite all of his contributions to the film industry, died in 1952, believing he was a failure. All right now, folks, get around, get around, get around. Come on now, step up, step up, one and all. Now, folks, they're on the inside. They're on the inside. Yes, sir, they're on the inside. Beautiful women, beautiful women and big, strong men. And, folks, they're burning. They're burning. You hear what I say? They're burning. You see them twist and you see them squirm. And, ladies and gentlemen, they're alive. They live. They live. How do they? Down in a den of fire. And they neither walk nor talk. They crawl upon their stomachs. And, ladies and gentlemen, you see them all for a dime. One dime, ten cents, the tenth part of a dollar. Just... What was the name of the day we gave Julius Caesar the runaround? Cleopatra, but it wasn't Julius Caesar, it was Mark Anthony. You're right. And you will see Cleopatra, the girl who came from Egypt and made the Romans like it. 20th Century Pictures had been founded in 1933 by former United Artists President Joseph Shank and former Warner Brothers writer Daryl F. Zanuck. In 1935, with the assistance of Spiris Gurus, current president of the Fox Coast Theaters, 20th Century merged with Fox Studios, creating 20th Century Fox on May 31, 1935. At the time of the merger, Shank became CEO, Skouris became president of the studio, and Zanuck became the president of production. With the completion of the merger, 
20th Century Fox hit the ground running. Zanuck signed young actors to compete with the other major studios. Early signees included Carmen Miranda, Betty Grable, Shirley Temple, Tyrone Power, and Henry Fonda. Newly signed talent would have to graduate from their, quote, trail of stardom, an 18-month training school to sculpt signees into the stars Fox wanted for their pictures. Graduating led to a six-month contract, after which the woman, yes, this school was only for women, would have their contracts reviewed every seven years. A holdover from the Fox days, and one of the few actresses to successfully transition to sound films, Janet Gaynor was one of the studio's most popular actresses. She was also the first Academy Award winner for Best Actress for her role in Street Angel in 1929. Gaynor was a huge box office draw for Fox, starring in State Fair in 1933, but her contract was believed to be in jeopardy when the merger occurred with 20th Century Fox. It didn't help that new, younger talent was being signed each day, and at 29, even back then, Gaynor feared her days were numbered. While she did star in several more hits for the studio, including Ladies in Love, by early 1937, her star appeared to be waning. When 20th Century Fox went to renew her contract with a demotion in status, Gaynor left, announcing that she would be retiring before being swept up by David O. Selznick to star in films for his newly established Selznick International Pictures. Her career resurgence would come the same year she was let go from her 20th Century Fox contract in the form of the first A Star is Born in 1937. It was just at that moment before night ends and day begins, when the whole world seems to tremble in the balance. Gradually, the light began to filter through the darkness, like some mysterious figure stealing through the trees. And then the first rays of the sun came up. The mountains, the mist caught in the treetops. I'd never before felt or seen anything like it. I know. I come here often. I felt that I'd been released from my body that I was suspended in midair. All the things that had been confused before suddenly became clear to me. I had a sense of knowledge more than human. I felt that I'd broken away and was free. I felt that if it lasted another minute, I, I'd die. And yet I was willing to die if I could just hold on to it because for that one moment, I had the feeling that you and God were one. Yes. During World War II, 20th Century Fox became the third most profitable studio. In 1942, Skouras became the president of 20th Century Fox. To reflect the taste of the day, Zanuck rolled out more adult, provocative films like 1942's Wilson, 1946's The Razor's Edge, and 1948's The Snake Pit. Additionally, the studio rolled out films based on popular Broadway musicals like 1945's State Fair. 
Screenwriter Joseph L. Mankiewicz was hired by 20th Century Fox in the mid-40s with the promise to direct pictures. He had previously had a string of hits with MGM and continued to do so with his new studio. Mankiewicz would direct hits such as The Ghost and Mrs. Muir in 1948 and A Letter to Three Wives in 1949, the latter of which would win him both the Best Screenplay and Best Director Oscars. Zanuck's biggest hit, without a doubt, is All About Eve, which came out in 1950. Starring a newly freelanced Betty Davis and based on a short story, the film told the story of an aging Broadway star and her soon-to-be younger rival. The film was a critical and financial smash and is considered to be one of the best films of all time by AFI. Mankiewicz would continue making films for Fox until leaving in 1952 to work on theater projects. Like all of the big studios after World War II, 20th Century Fox had to get creative to stay afloat. With the loss of their theater chain in 1948 and the dip in theater attendance thanks to the television, 20th Century Fox attempted to expand the previous Cinerama system, which used two projectors to produce an image on the screen, to CinemaScope, which needed three. 20th Century Fox mortgaged their studio in order to purchase the rights to the projection system, locking out any other studio from using the technology, and released their first CinemaScope film, 1953's The Robe. The Robe a biblical epic that tells the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, was a record-breaker, earning the largest single-day gross at one theater, as well as the record for one week's revenue at a single theater. By the time the film had released, Zanuck had already decided that every 20th century release going forward would be in CinemaScope, but to do this would be quite expensive. Fox offered theaters to cover conversion fees, about $25,000 per screen, and offered licensing rights to other studios in order to ensure that there would be enough content to fill the newly converted screens. While this method worked for about three years, in 1956, ticket sales declined once more. Zanuck resigned as head of production and moved to Paris, becoming an independent producer. It would be many years before he would return to the United States. Outside, all of you. Her Majesty and I will speak in private. Out! Before I chop you up and feed you to my horses. That's how Romans frighten little girls. They like to frighten little girls. Wait outside. I married Octavia at her brother's insistence before all Rome as a gesture of good faith, a guarantee of peace, a bargain sealed. With a kiss? Or did you simply shake hands on your wedding night? People of Rome were celebrating the marriage, were rejoicing in it even before I arrived. How could I refuse? By saying no, as you have said no to all my demands. Why, then impossible, unreasonable. The kind of conditions one lays down for a helpless enemy. You're not helpless, yet. I cannot see to you the territories you want. It would lead to an open break between Rome and me. Why do you think I asked for them? It would be playing into Octavian's hands what he hopes for. It would not be wise. By the early 1960s, 20th Century Fox needed a hit, and they needed it soon. Digging into their library, 20th Century Fox attempted to replicate the success of Fox Films' 1917 film, Cleopatra. The studio hired producer Walter Wenger to oversee production. While originally planned to be a much cheaper film, 
Wanger had a vision and managed to renegotiate from the originally planned $2 million budget to $5 million. As a publicity stunt, Wanger offered to pay Elizabeth Taylor $1 million to star as the last queen of Egypt. While the film was infamously plagued by illness and the antics of its stars, not to mention the headline-grabbing affair Elizabeth Taylor would have with her co-star Richard Burton, which carried on for years to come, there was also director troubles, which produced an initial six-hour picture, a picture which ended up costing $31 million, almost bankrupting 20th Century Fox and forcing them to shut down several other upcoming projects including Marilyn Monroe's last and unfinished film, Something's Got to Give, which was also suffering from similar issues with its own famous actress. While the film would eventually be allowed to start up again, Monroe would be found dead in her home a few days before production was slated to restart. The film would be renamed Move Over, Darling, starring Doris Day and James Garner, and would go on to be a massive hit. Zanuck was done with Scudis. After giving an eight-hour-long speech to the company's board members, Zanuck managed to get permission to fire Scudis, who Zanuck replaced with his own son, Richard. Immediately, they shut down the studio, laid off the staff, put an end to the movie tone newsreels, and sold off a 180-acre section of the backlot to a developer, which would become modern-day Century City. Cleopatra was rushed to completion and luckily for all involved, the gamble paid off. While Cleopatra was divisive critically at the time, it was a massive hit financially. The film would go on to win four out of the nine Oscars it was nominated for. To keep the lights on, 20th Century made several cheap, but quite popular films. The most notable being 1965's The Sound of Music, starring Julie Andrews, which would not turn out to be a critical and financial hit, but would give the studio the lifeblood it needed to survive for a short time. This reprieve would be short-lived, and despite successful films like The Planet of the Apes in 1968, there were far too many flops, and from 1969 to 1971, 20th Century Fox posted major losses. The Xanax were removed from power and replaced with Gordon T. Stolberg as president and Alan Ladd Jr. as head of production. Stolberg had worked his way up the ladder at Columbia before heading up the film division at CBS, overseeing 26 films before being scouted by 20th Century Fox. Ladd was an agent turned producer who'd returned from London to head up Fox's film department. These two would be the ones responsible for bringing the studio its most famous property. Ladd would soon approach Stolberg with a script from a young filmmaker named George Lucas. A script about a young hero's journey set a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Short for a stormtrooper? Huh? Oh, the uniform. I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you. You're who? I'm here to rescue you. I've got your R2 unit. I'm here with Ben Kenobi. Ben Kenobi? Where is he? Come on. Oh, good. Now I want to watch Star Wars instead of work.
I doubt I need to tell you, but I will. Star Wars was a massive hit for 20th Century Fox, more than quadrupling their stock from $6 a share to $27 after the release of the film. With this newfound financial stability, 20th Century Fox came under new ownership. In 1981, the studio sold for $720 million to Mark Rich and Marvin Davis. Before the sale, Stolberg had used studio profits to expand its holdings to include a golf course and ski resort, as well as some land on which Davis would build Fox Plaza. Mark Rich, who, before purchasing 20th Century Fox, had primarily been in real estate and oil, became a fugitive of the United States in 1984, fleeing to Switzerland. He was charged with tax evasion, racketeering, and illegal trading with Iran during the Iran hostage crisis of 1979 to 1981, the events the 2013 film Argo was based on. Davis bought out Rich's holdings in 20th Century Fox for $116 million, which he would sell on to Australian media mogul Rupert Murdoch. Murdoch had spent the previous 30 or so years expanding his news empire from a small newspaper in Adelaide, Australia, to News Corporation, a creatively named multimedia conglomerate company with newspapers all over the world. Murdoch would eventually buy out Davis from 20th Century Fox and give the studio a subtle rebrand. Up until this point, 20th Century Fox had been called 20th Century Hyphen Fox and Murdoch changed it to 20th Century Fox. No hyphen. After Murdoch became a U.S. citizen, he was allowed to bring the Fox Broadcasting Network to air. The aforementioned network that while bearing Fox's name, Fox had been dead for over 20 years before the network came to be. It's been almost 15 years, hasn't it? Living from day to day, moving from place to place, with no memory of who or what you are. Shut up. Give me a chance. I may be able to help you find some answers. How do you know? You're not the only one with gifts. Where are you going? Where is he going? He's over there. What are you doing? Over here. What is this place? Now, like Paramount and MGM, I'm going to focus on the film side of things for the remainder of this episode, though the history of the Fox television network is quite extensive. In 1994, Fox formed its family division, called Fox Family Films, which would later be renamed to Fox Animation Studios in 1998 after the success of Anastasia. Also in 1994 was the formation of Fox Searchlight Pictures, a studio meant to rival Disney's recently acquired Miramax studio with the goal to release more independent films. The studio's first major success, 1997's The Full Monty, took the BAFTA that year for Best Film. Briefly, Fox Atomic was founded under Fox Searchlight for comedy and genre films, but was defunct within three years, putting out only 10 films, including 2009's Jennifer's Body. 
In the 2000s, 20th Century Fox had a string of hits, though largely co-producing, newly popular franchise films, including X-Men, Ice Age, Kingsman, and the first, and so far only, film in the Avatar series. Until very recently, 20th Century Fox held the highest grossing film of all time with 2009's Avatar, a record they would hold for 10 years before being overtaken by Disney's Avengers Endgame. By 2012, Murdoch split up News Corp into News Corp and 21st Century Fox, the latter of which included Fox Entertainment and 20th Century Fox. Murdoch kept the name to honor the heritage of the studio. 20th Century Fox would continue to expand for several more years before Murdoch found a buyer. In 2017, Walt Disney Company announced that it would be purchasing 20th Century Fox and all of its assets for $71.83 billion. In the last four decades, Fox has become synonymous with its television networks more so than the studio William Fox founded. In an effort to avoid confusion, Disney renamed the studio 20th Century Studios on January 17, 2020, scrubbing its founder from its name. The same was done to all other film units, including Fox Searchlight Pictures, which was changed to Searchlight Pictures. For now, the studio previously known as 20th Century Fox remains on their original lot, separate from Disney for now, renting space from the Fox building for the next seven years. While it is far too early to see what will become of this former titan of the golden age, its 80 plus years of content will have to hold us over for now. Some say it's just a legend. Not so. You see, I knew him once. When he was just a dog at a man's side. And even though this land is his, every summer, when he comes down to the valley, he remembers kind hands and old masters. Before he went to his own, became his own master. Before he heard the call. And that's going to do it for this week. If you want to delve more into what we covered today, all of my sources, as well as some film recommendations, are in the show notes. Availability for the recommended viewing is based on the U.S. market. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media on Twitter at Tinsel underscore Factory, Instagram at Tinsel Factory Pod, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. Corresponding images for this week's episode will also be up on all social media. I do as much research and fact-checking as I can for each episode, which I write and record in the span of about a week, so if I got anything wrong, please let me know and I will correct it in a future episode. Next week, we're going to be covering possibly the most well-known of the Big Five, Warner Brothers, a studio built from the ground up by family that was nearly torn down by family. Thanks for listening, and until next time. 
That's a wrap. Where you're terrific if you're